Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 189 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. I'm not going to do much of an introduction today because we do go a little bit long, but know that you will just love Donna, Andrew's mom. She is several years into her grief journey now and has a wisdom about her that I really appreciated and cherished, and I know that you will too. She's done an amazing job really trying to help other moms in her local area, and I just love that. I love how she is giving back to the bereaved community in really a wonderful way. And I also know that you'll love hearing about Andrew and the ways that people who loved him have gone on to remember him after his death. Thank you so much, Donna, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today. I'm so excited to talk to you. I don't know if I'm excited. I'm nervous. (laughs) That's totally fine. But I'm glad to talk to you. I have listened to quite a few of the podcasts and they've they've been helpful. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, what makes this especially kind of fun for me is that your son's name is Andrew. Yes. And of course, I had an Andrew, although the one time I, well, I shouldn't say one time because I've called him Andrew over the years, but one time when he was quite young, I called him Andrew and he just looked at me like I was totally weird and said, I'm not Andrew, I'm Andy. Like, okay, yeah, but really, actually, your name is Andrew. Uh, I (laughs) It took me a little bit to convince him that that was in fact true, but yes, I can't really remember why we never used Andy. It just was always Andrew from the beginning. And yeah. And he had, we had a story about him too, where the neighbor down the street that he had been down at their house and he was leaving. He with our other son, the guy, the man was calling Andy, Andy, and he just kept walking. And the guy was getting a little perturbed that he was <laughs> ignoring him. And Andrew just never, he never thought it was him. He, he was always Andrew, not Andy. So, but it's <laughs> nice that they have the same. I love the name. I do too. I do too. Yes. So anyway, it made me smile a little bit to get an uh, email from Andrew's mom. So why don't you start out by just telling us all about your great son, Andrew? Okay. I think that was the, the part that's so hard for me about this is I just told my husband that I, it's so hard to want to honor who all he was. I bet it's, yeah. it's, no, it's a long story. It can be a long story, but just um, we live in Colorado. We have two sons, Aaron and Andrew. Andrew mm-hmm. was the younger one. They're two and a half years apart. We've lived in the same house their whole life. <laughs> so, wow. and it's in kind of the older part of town. So we didn't have, there weren't a lot of kids in the neighborhood. There were none actually. It was mostly older people or singles. And so they played a lot together and they mm-hmm. were, they did get along fairly well. You know, they have the normal brother scuffs between them, but because they're very different, very, two very different boys. The older one, Aaron was, is very talkative, very gregarious, outgoing. And then Andrew came along and, you know, as he grew, we noticed how he was more quiet and introspective, yeah. and, you know, good student, but not the outgoing people person, you know, about Aaron, they always said at parent teacher conferences, he's so social, which many talked all the time. <laughs> and Andrew <laughs> never, we never heard that about Andrew. But, you know, from a, a young age, they both did baseball and then later in, they did lots of baseball and then they did roller hockey, which isn't even a thing here anymore. But they went into that from a young age, though. Andrew loved airplanes. He just mm-hmm. he loved airplanes. He was always he wanted to be from about the third grade on. He wanted to be an Air Force pilot and he would draw these planes on the sides of his margins of his papers at school. And we started you know, seeing them as he was bringing these home and sort of talking to him. He's, yeah, I just really want to be an Air Force pilot. 
Then when he was about 12 or 13, we went to a regular doctor's appointment and the doctor said, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work out for you. And he says, why? You know, that's all I've ever wanted to be. And they said, well, you have three strikes against you. You're too tall. And he was always head and shoulders above everybody else in his from preschool mm -hmm. on. And he had contacts and he had 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 asthma. He kind of outgrew that. But they said that those are not good. That being too tall was the main thing. Something about yeah. the ejection seat. If they eject, they'll hit the top or something. I don't know. But he, they figured at the rate he was growing, he was going to be too tall. So it just devastated him. Yeah. He just thought, I mean, from third grade, clear up until, you know, junior high, that's all he wanted to be. You know, I think that's another thing that endeared him to me is because, you know, Andy was just about ready to enter the aviation academy where he was going to train to be a pilot. So he would have been had his pilot's license, had everything gone according to plan by the time he graduated from high school. So I hadn't read that part of his story until just, I think, last week. And I thought, oh, I didn't realize I knew. No, I know. I mean, there were so many like little connections. Of course, my Andy was the shortest one in his class and your Andrew was the tallest. But mm. it that 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 love of airplanes and flying was something they had in common. He was so excited to be a pilot. So anyway, I don't mean to interrupt you, but that it was just a cool connection. Mm -hmm. No, it's okay. It is. So we were very active in church. Both boys grew up in the church and with a very good youth group from junior high on. Uh, our older son, being two and a half years apart, but they were when Aaron was a senior, Andrew was a freshman. So they were more like, okay, you know, the four years mm -hmm. apart in school. So when Aaron graduated, our youth pastor left the church. He just resigned. He, he was going to go to back to school and our church chose not to replace him. So parents kind of took over the youth and it didn't work really well uh, yeah. for a variety of reasons, but we were really, Andrew was starting to, he, he would visit a few other churches in town trying to find a youth group to fit into, went to one for a while. And they had both gone to Christian school mm -hmm. and Aaron had switched to the public school in 10th grade. Andrew stayed at the Christian school until halfway through his ninth grade, kind of a long story why, but he decided to switch to the public school. He met some girls at school. The girls always liked Andrew. I don't know why, but I mean, he was just cute. Of course, his mother would say that, right. but and tall and handsome, but quiet. So I don't know if they were just intrigued by him or, or what, but they invited him one day to a pizza lunch. Uh -huh. And so he went with them a few blocks away from their, their high school and turned out that this was the girl. One of the girls that invited him was the youth pastor's daughter and Jana and Andrew became best friends all through high school. Andrew just clicked right into that group just in that first day the youth pastor greeted him and just, I don't know, he was a great guy. I mean, it was very difficult for us to let him go to the other church. It wasn't very far from our church, but we knew that our church didn't have what he needed. So often I would go to our first service and then we had Sunday school in between and then another service. And so during Sunday school, I'd go to part of Sunday school and then go over to his church to watch him because he eventually then went on mission trips and learned how to play the guitar he just picked up a guitar one time on one of the trips. Our church had done several mission trips too, but the other church went to Guatemala and Mexico and Canada. And he had picked up this guitar and kind of taught himself how to play on line. Mm -hmm. And he became the worship leader for these trips. And he just loved it. He just kind of found his niche, loved serving others. He was always just a really hard worker and loved doing the, the music for the group and just had lots and lots of friends at this youth group. And we were just so thankful that he'd found this, yeah. this church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He just fit. Yeah. On one of the mission trips, Mexico, they had this chance encounter with a missionary pilot and he started thinking, Oh, maybe that's what I can do. I can, uh -huh. you know, combine my love for flying with my love for reaching out to others. And maybe I can be a missionary pilot. And it started growing. I think this was maybe in his junior year of high school. Then he, you know, by the time he was a senior and we were looking at colleges and there was only really a couple that were flight mission, aviation mm -hmm. flight schools that we found at the time. Um, one of them was in Texas and we went down and visited it and it was a good school, but he just, he spent the night in the, in the dorm and 
the next, I had spent the night in the hotel and the next day I said, well, what did you think? And he said, I don't know, mom. He said, I asked him, what do they do on their time off? And they said, play video games. And he's just very outdoorsy. You know, they grew up hiking and camping and snowboarding and yeah. just very outdoorsy. And he was not into video games at all. And he just thought, I don't think this is the place for me, even though he had a scholarship there, 10,000 or so. And so then the other one was Moody Bible Institute which is based in Chicago, but their flight school is in Spokane, Washington. And he had a kind of a lot, a lot to sign up for. I mean, the, the application process was long. He had to write five essays and he wasn't doing it and wasn't doing it. And I was kept getting after him and he finally did and he got accepted. And so he's off to Spokane. We took him, I took him out there. Uh, we drove his truck that his dad had given him his old truck and you know, all this stuff in the back and a mattress and drove out and he, we found him a place to live. Moody in Spokane doesn't actually have a, a campus where you live, a dorms or, or cafeteria mm -hmm. that you have to live on your own. So we found him a, a big house, huge, <laughs> big old house that he's shared with five or six other guys. And um, the, the aviation school is five years there. So okay. the first year is biblical studies. Second and third is what they call, I think it's, airframe and power plant. And that's all learning about the plane, how to fix it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go down in some remote area, we always said, you know, like MacGyver with chewing yeah. gum and, you know, duct tape. And we were mm -hmm. kind of nervous about that, but he was I so totally excited. Because Peter's took, taken aviation maintenance classes mm -hmm, now. I mean, yeah. Andy would have, but Peter did. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Two years of that second and third year and then uh -huh. fourth and fifth is flight. And, yeah. uh, and then hopefully the mission field. So, but the, the, there is this long story short. I mean, this, the first year I was gonna, if uh, he did, he made it through his first year biblical studies. That was fine. Although he was working 40 hours, 16 credits of school. He was busy, busy, busy all the time and lived in this big house. They didn't have a lot of heat. <laughs> they couldn't afford the heat. So we Skype him and you could see his breath. And we're like, what are you freezing? Or, you know, we were paying half his school. He was paying his other half. But by the second year, going into the second year, Moody encourages them to start your uh, getting your what was it called? I'm, your money getting uh, support. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that when you graduate three or four years down the line, you can you can go to the they won't let you go to the mission field in debt. Okay. So, so you've got to have like kind of sponsors almost to be able to find. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I could not get him to write this letter, you know, like a letter, but he finally wrote when I got it here, I was just going to read part of it because let me see, it, it says it best. He said through a series of setbacks, including height issues, I was too tall to fly a jet during this time. I was, Oh, I, I was left confused and searching. Right. He said, I was able to go on many mission trips and began to discover the will of God in my life. I was given a true passion and heart for missions and an unquenchable desire to serve others around the world in the name of Christ. Finally, through a series, you know, he mentions that he met that pilot, but his first year of school was difficult. He was working a lot and going to school a lot. And he said, the most rewarding part of my experience did not come from the school itself. It came from life. I was thrust into an unfamiliar city, a thousand miles from home, living on my own. I had to find a way to provide enough money to pay tuition, rent, food, gas, electricity, et cetera, and quickly found out that no matter how much I worked, I could not make it solely relying on myself. And he said, this stretched my faith to, the, to its limit. I had become accustomed to trusting in myself, not God. I began questioning why I even came to Moody in the first place if I could not make it through the first year. Looking back, I think that is really the point where God wanted me to be. I was forced to surrender to him and trust that he would carry me through. He said several times when I could not pay my, my bills in full money or food would miraculously arrive on my doorstep, providing in the last possible moment, often to the exact dollar amount needed. Other times when I was worn down from work and school, God would place someone in my life at just the right time who would encourage me and keep me going. And uh, so that was his, his heart. He really learned a lot that first year. It was difficult, but he made it through. And then the second and third year, this airframe and pilot, his dad used to be a, a diesel mechanic. So he, oh. but Andrew did not seem to have any of that <laughs> innate <laughs> ability to fix things. So it was a hard, but he's very bright, could learn, 
mm-hmm. but they just long story short, they had to keep an FAA logbook sure. of every hour that they did in school, what they did, how they did it. Well, it got stolen out of his car. And that meant that he had to start over. He couldn't recreate it. It was, you know, it was actually, you know, handwritten, not mm-hmm. computerized or anything. So he had to wait till the following year to take that class again because they were cyclical. So he did. He started over and then he got it stolen the second time. And he just kept oh started thinking, maybe this is not what I'm supposed to do. I don't yeah. know what's going on. That same year, his dad had gotten cancer. His girlfriend, many three years, broke up with him. He he was just very down and thought, what? what is going on? I thought I was doing what I was, should be doing, yeah. but nothing was really working out. So he had seen a bumper sticker. He had seen a bumper sticker on one of the flight instructor's cars and it said peak seven adventures and him being this adventurous outdoorsy guy, yeah. he thought, what is that? So I went and asked the flight, the flight instructor and he told him that this was a Christian nonprofit reaches out to at-risk and underprivileged kids, takes them out into the wild. I um, may I'll read something a little bit later of what they said about that, but he, he thought, wow, that sounds interesting. I like the right. wild part of it. And, and eventually he did leave school. And uh, after many things had happened, more things had happened, but he left school and started to work at a climbing gym. I think he'd worked at the climbing gym actually after the second and third year, he started working at the climbing gym too. Because he had a love for climbing, I'm sure from, from a long time or he did. I mean, here he had just started really like his senior year Uh of high school, started climbing a little bit, mostly bouldering, which is like with no ropes, they just do low bouldering with a crash pad down below. But when he got out there and started working at the climbing gym, he really loved it. Just And he's very passionate about whatever he chose to do. He would do it well, Mm -hmm. you know, figure out the best ways, the safest ways, really into it and loved working at the climbing gym and uh, eventually met a girl. He calls in 2011. He'd gone out to school in 2007 and then 2011, he calls and mom, there's this girl. And I'm like, oh, you know, he hadn't dated much after the girl, the first girl broke up with him and. You got to tell that little bit of a funny story about how they met. Cause I think that was a cool story you had told me earlier. So the climbing gym, he wasn't working on that particular day, but Emily, I uh, went in, she was from California, but she'd gone out there to go to school, lived with her aunt and uncle in, in Spokane. And she was going to, she was going to school to be a occupational therapist and living with her aunt and uncle. She'd gone into the climbing gym. She had climbed a little bit or mostly bouldered in California. She went in there and the guy behind the front desk, as they were talking I mean, somehow he knew that she was a Christian and he said, oh, you should meet Andrew. And she said, why? And he said, because he's a Christian. And she said, yeah, but is he really? And he goes, oh, trust me. And this guy was not a Christian, the guy behind the desk, but he said, oh, trust me. So, I mean, we knew then, we didn't really know how he was living. I mean, we'd heard his, the stories that he, you know, but we didn't know that it was so obvious that he was a Christian. And anyway, a few days later, Andrew came in to work and the same guy said, oh, you need to meet this girl that came into the gym. And I go, why? Well, because she's a Christian. And Andrew said, but is she really? <laughs> and the guy said, oh, that's what she said to me. Trust me. She's a, she's a Christian. So I just love that story. That's the sweetest. Yeah, it was really cute the way they met. And but within like a month, they were I think they were already in love. Yeah, she was just an awesome little gal. Christian climber, going to school, very hard worker, just a sweetheart. And we were Skyping with them and, and, you know, getting to know her a little bit. And then 2012, Andrew, he started rafting, he mm-hmm. went to raft guide school. He was mountain climbing, leading trips with his Peak Seven Adventures, mountain climbing, rock climbing, rafting. He started every summer, he would move out of his apartment and into a tent on the river that he was rafting in three different rivers in Washington. He also did Oregon and he would try to save money by moving out and living in a tent all summer. So this was when she met him, he was basically homeless, <laughs> but working, you know, volunteering for peak seven, it was not a paid job other than if you could get support. So his moody support did turn into some support 
during this peak seven, he had sent another letter out, told them he just didn't feel like this was where the Lord was leading him and peak seven was, and, and he didn't know what else. I mean, this, you know, but volunteered with them for about four years, 2010 to 2014, met her during this time. She was still going to school. She loved all that outdoor stuff too. I called him one time and said, could I come out? What would you think about me coming out to see you raft? Because we heard all these stories. He'd come home yeah. at Christmas. He'd come home maybe once in the summer, but I needed to see sure you did. what he was doing. We were kind of living vicariously through all his stories, but I didn't know what he'd think about mom coming out there. And but he said, oh, that would be so cool. You could come out. Yeah. Yeah. Come on out. And I thought, where would I stay? I figured with her aunt and uncle, with her. He said, no, no, you'll come out and stay in Tent City. And I'm like, Tent City, yay. <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? Because I mean, we had camped when they were smaller and then turned into father-son campouts. I would stay home, do chick flicks and girl things. And I, you know, my idea of camping by then was more like at the Holiday Inn, but I thought I would do anything to go right, right. You know, see what he was doing. So I went out there. Spent five days, flew in on Thursday and home on Monday. And in the three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I went on five rafting trips with him as the guide. And, you know, I had told him, I mean, I could swim, but I'd never been on white water rafting. And I said, what if I fall out? He goes, I'm just going to sit you right in front of me. You fall out. I'll just pull you right back in. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just the most wonderful experience. One of my best memories. Emily came out on Saturday. You could see him in his element and where God yes. had placed him. And I, I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful story that like one thing led to another that he thought was going to be the final thing. And it never quite was, but everything was very well orchestrated, right? Yep. That's the word I use all the time with God. He's in the background orchestrating things you never mm -hmm. even know are coming. Yeah. And, yep. Um, yep. Including Emily. She just. Right. So when I was out there the last day, well, she came out on Saturday. I met her went rafting. She went with mm -hmm. us on several trips. And then the last day he was actually teaching a climbing course to the other Peak 7 staff. And so she and I went for coffee before I was then going to go out and, fl and fly home. And we talked for three hours. She was asking me all kinds of questions about Andrew that I was like, uh, nobody had asked me forever. You know, I mean, what was Andrew like when he was three? And <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but I went home and told my husband, she's the one. Yeah. Makes me cry. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just knew. And, um, she was, she, they, she they, the she finished school. And then he, that same year at the, toward the end started EMT school, figured that was a good, he had, he had done a woofer WFR it's wilderness first responder class with peak seven, which is, you know, they had to build, you know, the things that they pull people out on if they get hurt. He built one out of a snowboard and he just loved that stuff. He, but they wilderness first responder is quite different than, you know, in city yeah. responders because they don't have all the stuff. You just have to use what you have. And he loved it. So, and he had had a friend that had gone to Moody that had been an EMT. And so he'd heard about all that. So he decided to go to EMT school. So he was in school. She was in school uh, by 20. 13, they came out to a family reunion in Colorado and Breckenridge and he asked her to marry him. We all knew it was coming and she didn't. And, and uh, it was just really exciting to do it at a family reunion. Everybody was there and just loved this partnership. They loved Emily. And, and so then they got married the following year in yeah. July of 2014. Mm -hmm. And they started their life together, right? And they're working and mm -hmm. yeah, love and life. They were just so happy. And but by then, then they, Andrew started thinking, I need to get back to Colorado. I, he had been in Spokane, was about to come home when he met Emily, you know, so then ended up staying for all these other years. And so he ended up out there eight years, but he always wanted to come back to Colorado, Colorado boy, born and bred and just loved it, wanted to climb all the places out here. And so they started kind of planning, saving money. And they came out in September of 2015 for our other son's little, his son, Dylan's two-year birthday. Mm -hmm. They were here for six days. We went up to Keystone, Colorado and spent a couple nights up there with our two married sons and little Dylan. And it was the first time we'd ever been together, all of us as with our married boys and just had a wonderful, wonderful time. 
And they looked at a little house that was already sold, but Andrew started thinking, yeah, maybe I could do this. Yeah. He was really into, you know, saving the money. He taught Emily all about budgeting because he'd had those difficult years out there. He'd learned a lot, taught himself a lot and was teaching her and she'd never lived on her own, just with her parents and then her aunt and uncle. And so they fly home and they had a schedule where if he was working like three days on, two days off, two days on, three days off. And she got on the same schedule. She had graduated right before they got married. So if he could take two days off in the middle of the week with three days before it and two days after they could have the whole week. So that's what they had planned to do. Yeah. So he was climbing a lot out there, was setting routes at the wild walls climbing gym, but at some point, some he was out climbing and some bolts and pins in the wall had broken on him. And he realized yeah. how rusty and old they were. Many had been placed 30 years ago when climbing wasn't really a thing. And he started just taking it upon himself to replace bolts and pins in all these climbing places with stainless steel. So he'd been doing just it kind since of around March. the area, around the area. Yeah, all place. around. There are many, many climbing areas out there, many climbing areas. Colorado. I mean, I didn't know any of this before he started doing it, but yeah. he started posting pictures on Facebook of the before, you know, rusty old bolts and the after beautiful stainless steel. And so other climbers started seeing it. Everybody knew Emily and Andrew. They were kind of the story around the climbing community in Spokane. How they'd fallen in love at the climbing gym and, you know, spent two more, it was two more, two to three more years before they got married. And they were quite the couple, the famous couple at the climbing gym. And so they started, people started seeing these, these posts and saying, Hey, can we give you money towards this? Cause he was doing it all on his own time, right. his own dime. And he said, sure. You know, I, you know, I'll buy his more stuff. So he kept posting it. So that's what he was going to do that day. It was November of 2015. And he'd already replaced the the bolts and pins two thirds of the way up this one wall. It's a natural conservation district, kind of right in the middle of big acreage in the middle of Spokane. So he wasn't really out in the boonies. He was just, but it was this big area. Uh-huh. And uh, he told her he wanted to go finish the wall and then they'd go climb it. And so she stayed home in the morning and was going to go out in the afternoon after he finished replacing these bolts and pins. And she was calling him and he wasn't answering. And she thought, well, maybe his phone is down below and he's up on a rope or something. Sure. And uh, she didn't think much of it. But when it got toward dusk, she went out there, decided to go see what was happening, why he wasn't answering his phone. And she's looking up at the wall, calling Andrew, Andrew, trying to find him, you know, on a rope somewhere. And he, she turned and looked and he was laying on the ground and she could tell he was gone. He still had his backpack on. He'd gone out early in the afternoon. This was more like 435 o'clock at night. And she didn't have a clue what happened. He was just laying on the ground with his backpack on and he was gone. And she said there was no blood, no bruise, no broken bone, no scrape, no nothing. He was just laying there. She called 911 and they came out. But I mean, she could tell he'd been gone for a long time, hours. So devastating. Yeah. So we got the call on a Friday night. I'd just gotten off work. I work at home. And I just got in the call, just made a taco salad. Remember these things, you know, the day and the time and the place. And um, I looked at my phone and it said Emily. And I thought, oh, I'll call her back. No, it's Emily. And I picked it up. And this man on the other end said, Mrs. Bauer. And I said, yes. And he said, I regret to inform you, your son, Andrew Bauer, is deceased. And I, I was like, What? I thought at first, my first thought was, this is a joke. Right. And I don't know who would joke about that. And yeah, I said, what, what, what do you mean? What happened? Because I, I, I didn't even really hear who he was. He was the paramedic. And I said, where's Emily? And it said, it said Emily was calling on my phone. And she said, well, she tried to call you, but she couldn't talk. You know, she had just found the love of the love of her life. I mean, they were yeah. soulmates if there ever were any. Yeah. Married 15 months. Yeah. She couldn't talk, but she, he did give her, he told me that they didn't know what happened. I said, what do you mean? You don't know what happened. You just told me my son was dead. And he said, we, there's no outward evidence of anything. You know, we, we don't know. Couldn't tell. He was just laying there on the ground with his backpack on another backpack with all his equipment in it next to him. And 
So I got on the phone with her and she was just, she couldn't even talk still. And I just went into mom mode and, okay, Emily, just calm down. I can't understand what you're saying and tell me what happened. So she told me how they'd spent the wonderful morning together. And she said, I don't know what happened. I, I can't, t- I can't. And Andrew had worn a heart monitor once in junior high. He had fainted a couple times. They never found anything wrong with his heart, but he'd worn a heart monitor. And we thought maybe, maybe he had a heart attack. That was one yeah. of our first thoughts, but had no idea. I had to go out. My husband was in the garage and had to go out and tell him and just, you know, burst into tears and called our son and told him. And I said, we're going to try to fly out there. She was alone. Yeah. Her aunt and uncle had, they had three girls. One of them was in school in Seattle and they were halfway across the state going for a, I think it was a volleyball tournament. And she was alone. And I said, we have to go out there. Emily's alone. And Steve, my husband said, well, maybe tomorrow. And I said, no, I got to see if we can get a, a plane tonight. And yeah. we did. We got the last flight out. And Aaron said, I'll come take you to the airport. I said, well, don't bring Dylan, his little son. Because I thought I couldn't stop crying. I just, I thought Dylan has never seen Ama. That's my grandma name, Ama crying. And I couldn't stop. And I thought he won't know what's wrong. So they got someone to take care of him. And they came and took us to the airport. And you know, on the way, we were saying, well, we're not going to post anything on Facebook or anything because we don't know what happened. We'll wait. But then we started getting notifications. Yeah. It was popping up on our Facebook that it was because he was an EMT, an ambulance driver, the other company that had come out and found him. They, you know, it was a whole community and everybody yeah, sure. knew that an EMT had died. And yeah. so they were posting it and we thought, oh, great. You know, we don't even know what happened and nothing you can do about Social media, right? No. no. Uh, we flew out and met with Emily, went to her aunt and uncle's house. And I remember going to get our rental car and they, you know, my husband went to get our suitcases. And I remember at first being on the plane, just thinking, nobody knows that our life just ended. You know, nobody has a clue that we're sitting here thinking, what just happened? We just lost our son. But that was where the grief started, you know, the very first night. You just have no idea what's going on. Went to the rental car thing and, you know, I get up to the, she's, oh, what, what do you, what brings you to Spokane? And I just started crying and it was just, oh my goodness. You know, all of a sudden your life has changed in a moment and you don't even, we don't know what happened. So anyway, uh, by Monday, they did an autopsy. Well, Saturday, we, we flew in on Friday night, Saturday morning, Emily took us out there, showed us where she'd found him. And we were trying to figure out what in the world happened and yeah. didn't have a clue. But as we were leaving, a couple of his climber friends. You had said to me earlier that you didn't think there was any way he could have fallen. Oh, right. Because right? he's such a safe climber. Like safety was always his number one priority. That was why he was out there. Right to make climbing safe for everybody else, and all the all the people that started posting said, "No way did Andrew fall! No way, no way." Emily said, "No, nah, I mean it didn't look like he had either. He was just laying there. You'd think that there would be some outward sign of falling, mm-hmm. but he was at the bottom with his backpack still on, so he hadn't started doing the work he was going to do. But his his backpack weighed forty five pounds, had a big drill that he'd drill into the rocks to replace these bolts and pins, and so Monday and all weekend long, we just kept, well, these two climbers were coming in as we were leaving the area and they had ropes and they went up to the top and they came to the house afterwards and told us, yeah, we think he did fall. We can see that he was at the top. There's disturbed, it had rained the day before. There was disturbed yeah. wet moss and pine needles. There was a great big tree beside this wall where he was going to replace the pins and two broken branches were at his body. So we don't know if he was holding on to one, looking over what he was going to do and it broke and he fell, or if he started just sliding on the wet moss and mud and he tried to grab a, mm-hmm. a branch to stop his fall and it broke and he fell. It was a two or three inch wide branch, but he was six foot four, yeah. you know, hundred, I don't know, 180 pounds or something. And then with the 45 pound backpack, he fell, we did about 80 feet and apparently died instantly because he hadn't moved. His leg was over one of the branches. He didn't try to take his backpack, nothing. Just so Monday, when we got the autopsy report, they said he died of massive internal injuries. 
and we just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Nobody could, <laughs> what Andrew fell, but you know, he, I don't know. They say, you know, it, it could happen to anyone. Yeah. Anytime. Sure. doesn't matter how safe you are. I mean, it was just, he hadn't gotten his equipment out yet. If he had, he would have never fallen. He, he was, you know, wore the helmet, always roped up. People had come afterwards. Then we started hearing stories after stories after stories about Andrew. They were posting on Facebook and saying, you know, Andrew taught me how to climb. He's the safest climber we know. And he's, he's a great guy. And all these stories. And we thought, wow. I and mean, we had no idea. I don't think he had any idea how much he was loved and respected. Mm -hmm. I don't think he had a clue, <laughs> but it was really, it helped us a lot through those early days, just hearing all the stories and, and um, you know, knowing that he had made a difference in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. Um, he, one guy said, you know, I was kind of the, I don't know, the odd guy out, you know, but Andrew, he said, I didn't even, I, I didn't get how Andrew could love me. He was, he was nice to me. And he said, but that's the way he was. He was so accepting of everyone. And it didn't matter anybody that came into the climbing gym, you know, he would just say, come on, let me show you how to come over on this. You know, and, and it didn't matter if they were brand newbie climber and people would say, you know, he'd say, if I can do this, you can do it. And he said, a lot of people said he had mad skills as a climber, but he would always make you feel like you could do it no matter who you are, what kind of equipment, girl, boy, man, woman, kid, it didn't matter. He was accepting of you. And it was just really heartwarming to hear because yeah. we didn't really know that side of his story at all. Yeah. Yeah. So then you had to plan some kind of memorial service and out in Spokane, right? Yep. In Spokane and our other son, then Aaron and his wife, flew out on Sunday, I believe. And we started talking to Emily and she said, I don't want it to be in a church. Andrew wouldn't have wanted that. A lot of the climbers are unchurched or don't even believe in God. And they could not understand that. How can you be out in God's wonderful, beautiful creation yeah. and not believe in someone who made it? And, but, you know, so they were quietly reaching out to climbers all over the place and anybody that they, they, they would tell their, their of their faith. And, she said, let's have it at the climbing gym. People will come there. So we, somebody, some of the family members ordered food and our older son, Aaron talked at it. And another climber who was a Christian talked and it showed a big, you know, long slideshow of Andrew up on the wall. And I mean, uh, probably 150, 175 people came and started telling us more stories. And it was just, you know, it was on his birthday. He died four days before his 27th oh. birthday. November 10th, we had a service at the climbing gym and one of the worst, awful and best hopeful days of my life. Yeah. Because of hearing who he was to people and, and then the next day, uh, Emily said, I can't live here in this apartment without him. I need to, can I come to Colorado? Cause they were going to move. They were going to move back to Colorado in March. That was the plan. And we never got him back, but packed up her whole apartment, their whole apartment, sold what we needed to sell, whatever she told us. And Aaron, you know, got all that going. And we left on Friday and drove home and she lived with us for the next two and a half months. So why don't we talk about your grief journey and what that's been like for you? You know, I had no idea. I didn't know one person who'd lost a child. Yeah. Uh, I knew of one lady in the church, but I didn't know her well. They'd just come to the church and I'd heard that she'd lost somebody, but it didn't mean anything to me. I thought, oh, that's sad. Yeah. You know, and Emily, she was 24 and a widow. Yeah. She was living with us. I had to go back to work. My husband had had cancer several years before he had, he was working, but not as much as before, never quite regained his strength. And, you know, we had to pay the bills. So. I had to go back to work, I'd work from home, which was both a blessing and a curse. I had four other people kind of under me. I was called a team leader and blessing in that I could cry if I wanted to. And I did all a yeah. hundred times a day. My thoughts went to Andrew and how could this be? Yeah. I worked my whole life. When the kids were born, I went part-time because that was, I wanted to be a mom. That's all I ever wanted to be was a mom. Yeah. I'd been a, 
I'm a title examiner, real estate title examiner. I've done it now for over 40 years, but that what I what I never have considered myself really a career person. It just it's a good job. I could have moved up, you know, into management or something, but I want to be a mom. That was I wanted to be home when my kids were home, and but so I was home feeling like a wreck and couldn't think. And because I'd done this for so long, I could do my job, but I was so slow at it. I I couldn't. I kept yeah. proofing and reproofing and proofing and reproofing, afraid to send anything out because I was just sure I'd done it wrong because I couldn't think. And Emily was here and she wasn't working. She was here during the day. My husband was here most of the time. And I remember one day they came down and said, "My, ba- my I'm in the basement of my house and where my office is. And they said, we're going to go for a ride in the mountains. And I said, okay. And they left and I just bawled. I just thought I want to go for a ride in the mountains too, but I couldn't, I had to work. And yeah, I was really feeling sorry for myself. I didn't really know that at the time. I mean, I, I just was, I was a mess. I couldn't believe I'd lost my son. It just doesn't feel fair. Everything feels just wrong, right? Yeah. Just wrong. Life yeah. goes on around you. You know, we had that service in Spokane. We had another one here a week after we got back and at our church and lots of people, I think 250 people came to that. And I was sick the day, that day I woke up and I thought, I mean, I just rarely ever sick. And I woke up with a fever. My stomach was upset. I could understand the stomach being upset, but a fever. And I thought, what's wrong with me? I can't stay home. I have to go to my son's celebration of life service. And it was, it was, I did go. I told afterwards, I told everyone that was coming through the line to greet us, you know, and I'm, I'm, I've got a fever. Don't, you know, they said, I don't care. You know, and everybody was hugging me anyway. And this girl that, the youth pastor's daughter had sung a song. That was one thing that started off. I think that was really early on that helped me. I didn't know it was one of his favorite songs. We have since, I've gotten a CD of him actually singing it. He led worship at their church as well after all these mission trips. But this one song is called My Savior, My God. Mm -hmm. And it says, I am not skilled to understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I only know at his right hand is one who is my savior. And Emily had told us that Andrew said, I don't want people to be sad if I die because I'll be in heaven with Jesus. But that's, yeah, you know, we knew he was happy. You know, I sing in my church and the worship band and we sing that song. So I know oh. like you say the words and I can sing it. I'm singing in my Yes. Head. I love that song. I've listened to it. I've I pull it up on my computer many, many times. And that one made more sense to me than, you know, but people come up to you and say the worst things. That, yeah. You know, I know they're, they mean well, Yes. but, they do. oh, well, he's in a better place. And, you know, it's so good that he's with Jesus. And yes, I mean, that's good, but we're left on earth without him. And yeah. in the blink of you. an eye, it's good for him, but not for you. And I wish people understood that, that they just don't think about it. They don't think no. that that's just not a comforting thing for you. Like I never knew it. I, it actually then makes you feel a little guilty because you miss him desperately and want him here. And then when someone tells you that they're so much happier, like, how does that make you feel good? That doesn't make you feel good. And then if you're on some day, you know, I remember going to church and people would say, how are you doing? And I didn't know what to say. Yeah, I felt like if I said I'm good, okay, or fine, let's. Oh, I'm good. I'm, I was lying because I wasn't. I wasn't. Yeah, even close to good, okay, or fine. Or give them this weird false sense of security that they don't need to worry about you anymore, too. Yeah, that's not true either. There's no win if they do perceive that you're having a good day. You feel guilty because how could you be having a good day? You just lost your child. You know, right? It's it was crazy. I, I there's no good answer. There's no good answer. No, there are no good answers, and there's no. I mean, our family was all dealing with it in different ways. Aaron lost his only brother. My husband lost his son. I lost our son, but husbands and wives grieve in very different ways. We found that out. I was working, but crying. And Emily and I had many conversations. It was was both very difficult and good that she was here. We love her like a daughter. She is our daughter. And she could tell us things about Andrew during those years that they were together. We didn't know. And it was great, but we were both grieving so much that it was hard. I mean, we had many cry, crying times. And I remember so it was November. I mean, Thanksgiving was right then. And 
I do kind of crafty things. I had this little grandson. I was making him a quiet book out of felt and, you know, all these different things. And I thought, I've got to get that done. And Christmas is less than a month. And really that saved me that month because it made my focus on something else, even though it was very difficult because still my mind is going, but it was busy work. Yeah. My husband could work. He, he loved doing it with his hands. You know, he was, he's a builder, contractor, repair guy. And, you know, he loved going to work but I couldn't think my job is more not hands. You know, it's, I don't know. It's yeah. more intellectual, not mm-hmm, physical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the people at work thought I was fine because I looked like I was doing my job, but I'm at home crying all the time. So that's why I say it was both good and hard is I could cry if I want to, but they didn't know it. So they didn't yeah. know how hard it was. And so I'd gone to a grief share. It's one of yeah. the, programs that it's very good, but someone had told me about it. And I went to one at a church nearby and that they were, they told me I could go anytime. It was 13 week long yeah. program, but they were in their 11th out of 13. They weren't starting right over again. So right, no. what was good from that though, there was only one other mom there who had lost her daughter just a few months before we'd lost Andrew. So I started thinking I should reach out to her and see if she just wants to talk. So I sent her an email and said, I lost my son. I heard that, you know, that day that you lost your daughter. And, and I said, would you like to just get together? And she said, absolutely. So I thought, Oh, so we, we got together and talked. I think we, I don't even know. I don't know if we went out for dinner or breakfast or I don't remember, but we talked and that was my first inroad into other moms Yeah, because they get it. Yeah. I mean, every single story is so different, but you're a mom and you get that loss. I did go to a, I guess it was in January. I had gone to the one in the one thing in December. And by the end of January, I did find another grief share and I did go the whole 13 weeks. And shortly after that, or right before it ended, this other mom that I had met, she told me about a mom's grief group in the next town over about 30 miles away. And I just said, I, I can't, I'm, I'm exhausted. I can't, yeah. it was hard enough for me to go every week to grief share and work all day. And not sleep. I wasn't sleeping well at all. I'd never had a problem sleeping before that. And now I, I couldn't sleep and I'm trying to work and I'm trying to go to these things once a, once a week. And I said, I can't go. I, I'm just too exhausted. And, but I kept it in the back of my mind. And, and by the fall, when they started another one, she sent me another text or email and I went. And that was just eye-opening for me because I sat in a room with maybe 10 other moms and we told whatever part of our story we wanted to tell. And people would talk about wherever they were in their grief journey and heads just started bobbing. It's like, yeah, yeah, I've been there, done that, get that. Yeah. And it was just, finally, I had people that understood and I could talk to and, you know, tell them what I was feeling and how hard it was. And it's so amazing that sisterhood that really develops so, so quickly when you're with other grieving moms, isn't it? It really does. Every story was so different. I mean, they'd lost every age possible, female, male, from every, no one else. I mean, I've, I think you had one other mom on this, I listened to just a few weeks ago, whose son had fallen mm-hmm. yeah. out in the wild. Yeah. But otherwise, I have never met anyone else whose son died that way. But it doesn't matter you know, it's, yeah. it's your son, it's your daughter and you lost them and you're grieving. But what was really good. I, let me see, I have the book somewhere, the book that we went over in that we, it was a, so I went to the mom's group. It was an eight week group. And we went over this book called understanding your grief. And every week we'd go over a different chapter. And sure. I just started thinking, wow, I'm not crazy. Did yeah. this book, I thought I was going nuts. I really, I had to go to Denver uh, for different meetings because I was a supervisor person. And I actually went down and talked with our HR lady and the, the vice president of the company. And I, because I wanted them to know, I talked to the HR and, and the vice president because I wanted them to know how this was affecting me at work because yeah. I thought we're, we have 700 people in our company in Colorado. And I figured this is going to happen again. I didn't know because I didn't know anybody before, but from them until now, we've had three more in my company who have lost kids. And I went down and told them 
you know, this is, I can't think I am not who I was. And I had talked to another guy who had lost his girlfriend and I asked him, did it affect your job? I mean, how, how did it affect your, your work? And he said, oh yeah, I felt scatterbrained for a year and a half. I said, can I tell them that I'm going down to this meeting? He's absolutely. Because I felt like, I told him I felt like a dumb blonde and they, they laughed. And I said, no, I'm serious. That's what I feel like. And that's really not who I am. It's not my personality. But I said, Scott, this other guy, he told me he felt scatterbrained for a year and a half and he is neither female nor blonde, you know, and he felt scatterbrained and having lost his girlfriend. This is my son. And not to compare grief, but I've heard from so many, it's just not the same. Yeah. You know, we'd lost, my husband had lost both his parents. I'd lost grandparents, but out of order death yeah. is different. You know, you, you think they're going to be your legacy after you're gone, not vice versa. It's, right. it's so odd for a 27 year old to die before you know, someone my age and but I was just going to read the, the chapters of this. If anybody wanted to get this book, it helped me so much. Understanding your grief. Um, he calls them touchstones. It's like open to the presence of your loss. These are chapters. Dispel the misconceptions about grief. Embrace the uniqueness of your grief. Explore your feelings of loss. Recognize you are not crazy. Understand the six needs of mourning. Nurture yourself. And the six needs of mourning that he sets out. Let me see if I can find it. Father marked it. Yeah. Accept the reality of the death, you know, which we hear those five grief yeah, steps, right. which just annoy me. <laughs> because you know, people <laughs> think, annoying, oh, you me. get through this stage, this stage, this stage, this stage, and mm -hmm. it doesn't go like that at all. It, you know, it's all over the place. And and that's what he says in here too. He says the six needs of mourning are not orderly or predictable. Your awareness of these needs, however, will give you a, a action-oriented approach to healing and grief. And I, I am not healed. This is now seven plus years later. But unless you're active in your healing process, I'm not sure you ever get there. And I mean, I don't think I'm going to arrive and be healed until I'm in heaven. And I don't get it. That was one of the hardest parts of it, my faith. Yeah. Grew up in church. We'd always gone to church. We were very deep in faith people, but my son died. And I don't believe God took him, but I believe he allowed it. And I don't understand why. He was living the way he should. He was telling people about God. I don't get it. And I don't think I'll ever get it. But I think the other one of the other things that has helped me the most is realizing that I don't see the big picture. Yeah. Um, the, that orchestrating of Andrew's life before this happened, I think he's still doing that now. I yeah. know. I mean, this this had a big effect on our other son. He was not even going to church when Andrew died. He had, they were trying. He was married, trying to find a church, but not very serious about it. And, his life has completely changed since then. He's now the student director, which is like a youth pastor at his church. Many, many things have happened since then, but the Lord is still working, but I don't get it. And I, I feel like when I get to heaven, I probably won't care anymore. Right. A lot of other moms tell me, oh, I have a list. I'm going to ask them everything. I, I want to know everything and to each his own, you know, but let me, these other six needs of mourning, accept the reality of the death. Let yourself feel the pain of the loss, you know, stuffing it. My husband, I think he didn't realize he was stuffing it, but he was stuffing it down. Not, you know, he's supposed to be the man. He's not supposed to be crying. I could cry. I mean, I'm emotional, but by the following July, he had one of the worst days ever. And just, he said, this grief was just overwhelming him and many things that happened that day. But anyway, I think we've learned to let ourselves feel it. I just saw something that I don't know where I saw it, but it said, feel, deal, and heal. And I really like that. It's very easy to understand, very easy to remember, but feel all the feels. My daughter-in-law, Emily, she always, feel all the feels, let yourself feel it and cry when you need to cry and, you know, mourn when you need to mourn and deal with the feelings and the whatever's happening and then heal 
as you go. I don't think I'm going to be fully healed, like I said, till heaven, but I hate even using the word better, but things do change over the years. I don't cry all day, every day, but you know, triggers, there's many, many triggers, different things you never thought would just hit you. It says, remember the person who died, develop a new self-identity, search for meaning and let, let others help you now and always. When I went to that mom's group, I went three times. So the second time I was gone for several weeks overseas for a trip. And so I went a third time because I just felt like this is the only place people get it. Yeah. I want to, and by, by after that, I quit going because I thought I should leave a spot for someone else. But the third time I went, there was a lady who came over. She also lived in the town I do. And uh, she said, I just can't, I'm just too tired. I can't drive this far. And it was 30 minutes. Yeah. Which doesn't seem like anything, but when you're exhausted and you can't even hardly, it was really hard for me just to get out of the house, just to decide to go. I had no idea. I'd never been to a group like that before. Didn't know what I was getting into, but I thought might as well try it. I mean, nothing else is helping me. And, but I started thinking maybe I should have a group in my town. Yeah. It just really felt empathetic toward these other moms and thought, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I can do it. Maybe I'll have a group where she won't have to drive 30 or 40 minutes. And so I, they had some training at the community grief center over there is where they had that group. And I went to one of the training. It was like for a facilitator. I've never felt I'm a talk. I'm not, I don't like getting up in front of people. I'm done. I don't lead things. I'm the one in the background doing, you know, the decorating or something. It's Mm -hmm. not. I've never led a Bible study. I've gone to them, but I don't lead. You know, I taught Sunday school, but it was kids. And I thought, I don't know if I could do this, but, but what, you know, being up those groups, it was just facilitating it. You just kind of keep yeah, the right. conversation going. And I decided to do that. I, I had a couple lady with the one that I knew that had gone over there. And then a, I had several more, the one in our church that I had heard had lost someone. I asked her if she wanted to come. She says, yes, but don't tell anybody I'm coming. Don't tell anybody at church. And that was another thing I realized was she didn't want people to know and come up to her and say, how is the group? Did you, you know, yeah. Did that help you? And she said, this is very private. I don't want people to know. I, you know, I mean, you want people to get it, but not because they don't get it. And she didn't want to have to say, well, we cried and we, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. And we did every single week. Yeah. I ended up with, I was going to have, I think five and the very first, no, that was the second group. First group, I had three that came. So just four of us, it was a very good sized group. I had no idea who to expect. I, I just knew a few people and uh, the second group, I was going to have five and that night I was waiting for them to come and a couple of them couldn't come for various reasons. And I texted my husband. I said, Oh no, two of them aren't even going to come. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. He goes, hon, he texted me back. He just said, whoever's supposed to be there will be there. You know, that really helped me Yeah, just leave it to God who, who would be there. And so mm-hmm. I've been doing, well, I started doing after that, the third group, I was going to have a couple of them just didn't feel like they could commit to that every week for eight weeks. So I started rethinking it. And now I have them on a Saturday morning. I make food, pretty food. I try to pamper them. I just felt like I I kept thinking what, what would have helped me just coming to a group and having some coffee and food and that they don't have to prepare. And so I have food and we talk about our kids because you don't get to talk about them. Mm -hmm. We talk about a theme sometimes from this book, you know, secondary losses or work. How is it at work? Or how is it with family members? Or, and I always make them something. I'm, I like doing crafty stuff. And I started from the beginning, actually this, this little candle, it just said, it says this candle glows in loving memory of, and I have Andrew, I always do his first to see if I can do whatever it is. I just do little small things, but I want to put their kids names on it. Yeah. I just, I feel like we don't ever want them to be forgotten. It's beautiful. I love talking to these moms about their kids and hearing, yeah. mostly hearing about their kids. Yeah. So now you do this about once a month or so? I know I do it about once a quarter, once about a quarter. every two and a half to three months. Uh, yeah. We just had two of them actually in February. First time I've ever had two Saturdays in a row, but 
and people couldn't come to one or the other. And, and then I'll have one probably first week of May or something. And so just four or five times a year. And it's beautiful. Uh, I found that that works really well. I, I now have a group here of about 16 to 20 that I send an email out to met all kinds of moms in all many, many different ways. I don't advertise this. It's just word of mouth. Somebody yeah. knows I'm doing it, tells me about another mom. And uh, these ladies, some of them have become my best friends. Uh, you know, yeah. one of them, her husband was really struggling with their loss of their youngest daughter who was 24. And so we went out with them and just, he, he wanted another dad. So my yeah. husband, we, I don't even remember what we talked about that night, but on the way home, they were saying, oh, that helped, that helped him so much just to have somebody else who who's in the same situation, you know, mm -hmm. somebody who gets it. That guy had actually quit his job because the people at work after six months said, Oh, aren't you over that yet? He said, no, yeah. I'm not over the loss of my 24 year old youngest daughter. You know, no. And he quit his job. Yeah. I just, I feel like try to educate people yeah. on grief. I know. I think we're out of time. It's getting long, but two of the things right after Andrew died, Peak Seven Adventures called us up, called Emily and said, we want to start a program with Peak Seven Adventures where we can spend more time with these kids who go on these trips. They try to tell them that they're worth something. These are at-risk and underprivileged kids that they mostly reach out to. And they said, how can we let them know that they are worth something and they want to spend more time with them. So they started a thing called the BAC, which is Bauer Adventure Course. It's a 50 plus day trip out into the wild in the summer, taking young people. The first one they did in 2016, uh, they took eight young men for 50 plus days, rafting, hiking, mountain climbing. They climbed up to the top of one of those big mountains out there in the snow and and they did Bible studies with them. I mean, devotionals and tried to teach them that they have an identity in Christ. And we were just thrilled. So I you know yeah. so many people start things, foundations, different things in memory of their son. And we felt like, wow, they're doing it for us. Yeah. And isn't that beautiful when that happens? We really felt great about it that you know, yeah. even now, I mean, as it's gone on the years, people don't know Andrew but he's, they have a little blurb. They give him a book as they go into this. It went for 2016, 17, 18, 19. And then of course COVID hit and they had to curtail it for a couple of years. And now, now they're kind of revamping it probably to a lesser, mm -hmm. not 50 days, maybe 20 days and then follow up lots and lots of follow up and, uh, you know, checking in with these kids over and over again and seeing how they're doing. So we support that cause at peak seven adventures. And then the following year after he died, another group started called the Bauer climbing coalition. And they were, it was started by a group of climbers that knew Andrew was doing this work, make trying to make it safer. And they have continued his work of replacing the bolts oh. and pins and climbing places all over Washington. And oh. it just feels fantastic to, to have that going on, but it got to be finished, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing Andrew with us today. I loved hearing about him. I love to hear about what you're doing, what's continuing on really with his legacy. It's just beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. You always want, you know, you said, you don't want people to forget him. Yeah. It's, it's hard. We do hear now and then from people out there is mostly in Spokane, but yeah, mostly in Spokane, just not too long ago, I got a a text from the guy who started Peak Seven Adventures. He was actually at Andrew and Emily's wedding and good friend of theirs over the years. And he just texted one day and said, Hey, Mama B and Papa B, I'm thinking about you. And I thought, Okay, how cool is that? He, he yeah. I know he thought about Andrew, and that's what made him think about us. So we hear once in a while, you know, it gets less and less as time goes on. But but when it happens, it's oh so precious. It is precious. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Donna. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. 
If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com. Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.